Well, I can see there's one major change from when I was here before. I'm now wearing trifocals and I don't have special glasses for being up here, so you'll have to... My eye contact in readings isn't as good as it used to be. It, uh, that's the way it is. <laughs> this morning I want to talk about religion, as I understand it, and as I presented it in the book. And as we had fun with it when I was here 18 years ago, Jay tells me that this will fill in a gap in her knowledge of the history of the church. For some people, it'll just be a reminder of things that happened a long time ago. But the point, one of the points I wish to make is, is that we are all asking the same questions. We're all approaching life. And my definition of religion is it's what individuals do with their solitariness. And the first, the first reading speaks to that. Let us celebrate the common rituals that make us kin. The poignancy of welcome and farewell, farewell, the anguish of defeat, the tender touch of those who call us friend, the exuberant joy of birth, the empty space in our hearts when a loved one dies, the ultimate loneliness that each knows, the warm embrace of comrades who welcome us to the celebration of life, the questions that persist and perplex and do not yield to our need for answers, the shining moments when the sun slants across our dim, meandering path and illuminates the way, the strange and anxious excitement of moving on to new places to call home, and the fragments of frustration when our best efforts yield pitiful results, the helplessness we feel in the world that sometimes presents only problems, the holy joy when some small victory for humanity is won and we have helped it happen. In all our moments of doubt and despair, of problem and pain, let us remember the common lot shared by our human kin. In all our times of truth and triumph, of faith and fortitude, let us celebrate what we share. We are, after all, in this together. I live in Williamston, and the Unitarian Church in East Lansing is quite a ways away, and I've been going to visit every now and then the United Methodist Church because they uh, have a lot of friends that are going there. And this reading reminds me of some of the attitudes there. As you will see, there's a key line in it where the little boy looks up at his mother and tells her what's going on. But uh, in this church, it doesn't apply. This is from Peter Fleck, G. Peter Fleck, who was an international banker and then became a Unitarian minister in his retirement. You who have given birth to children and you who have witnessed this most exhilarating of all human experiences, when life brings forth life, you know that giving birth is a messy business. For we are born in blood and gore. Creativity is marked by messiness. It takes a degree of resignation to accept this disillusioning insight. Maybe a degree of wisdom. The very young have neither. I am reminded of the story of Benjamin, 
Benjamin is a grandson of ours. He was born and spent his early years in a small university town in Iowa, surrounded by farms. <coughs> At the age of four, reflecting his environment, he owned an imaginary farm. From time to time, he told his parents what was going on there. One day, he said to his mother, Mom, you know what happened last night? Last night the vet came, and you know what he did? He cut off a little piece off the hoof of the cow, and now she has a calf. His mother, who has a talent for seizing opportunities when they present themselves, <laughs> felt that this was the moment to introduce her four-year-old son to the facts of life. Benjamin, she said. This is not the way it happens. And then she embarked on a long story about sperm and fertilization and how the embryo develops in the womb and how the little calf is finally born between the cow's legs. You see, Benjamin, she said, that is how it really happens. Whereupon Benjamin looked her straight in the eye and said, not on my farm. <laughs> You see, Benjamin was not ready to accept the ambiguity of life's messiness. He still lived in the world of fantasy and fairy tales in which things happen without effort, just like that. But we know that in the real world it isn't that way at all. In the real world, nothing happens without the proverbial blood, sweat, and tears, and that the birth of a calf or a child or a symphony, or a theology, is invariably attended by at least one of these three. This can be very grievous. Thus ends the readings for this morning. <clears throat> and I must say it's a delight to be here in the room again and to notice that uh, it is still well-loved and uh, not well-used yet as it was when I first came. It's fun to see all of the people here who I used to know and who we enjoyed have spending two years with. By the way, my wife is not here because she is now on the state board for the Garden Clubs of Michigan and their state convention begins tomorrow and she has been recruited by the state chairman to be there this afternoon and help with the setup. So she's leaving this afternoon to go to the big hotel in Grand Rapids to uh, participate in that so she didn't, couldn't come. So, when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about this morning, I remembered the sermon I gave about a month ago down in Portage, and I had the title of a bowl of jello salad to be a metaphor for the diversity of religious beliefs that are in a Unitarian congregation. And the idea was is that the jello is there in the bowl, and it holds all those various pieces of fruit without destroying them and the taste of each one. And so, each of the individual pieces of fruit maintains its own integrity. I shared this with an old friend of mine. He says, yeah, but it doesn't have any motion in it. And I said, well, you can jiggle the bowl. And he says, yeah, but it doesn't really move. <laughs> and then as I was looking at the order of service here, I came across that phrase which you have, which is seeking our highest values. And I wondered, I wonder what the highest values are. 
what are values anyway? And where do you go seeking them? And how do you know what they are? And where do you get them? And then I began to think back and I realized that for me, values are any and everything that we humans are willing to expend effort, money, and expense to wealth to get, to hold and maintain. And then it occurred to me that one of the highest values of this congregation is in fact people's church and the community it represents. And why is it so special? And one of the reasons it's so special is that there's not just one farm here. When I went to that United Methodist Church, it was very clear from Pastor Julie that there was really only one faith in that church that was really acceptable. And that's why you see <clears throat> I had that reading about Benjamin who said, not on my farm because it was always on her farm and that's the way it should be. And here we say, well, I have my farm, but you can have yours. But how is that possible? Well, for me, religion is what we all do with our solitariness. How do we grow old? How do we age? How do we mature? How do we face all those different crises of life that come along where we have to change the meaning of our, our understanding, at least, of the meaning of our lives? <clears throat> now, all of us, I can see, I think I can see, take a survey, a quick survey of the room and are past 30, so we're all past the 30-year-old's disease, which is that time in life where we realize that we can no longer act as if we're immortal because we realize that death is a part of life and oh by the way being 40 years old isn't ancient anymore because we're 30 and then it happens again at 40 and 45 and then again at retirement age and then as you get close to 80 and since I'm now 79 I'm having to think about what's the meaning of life going to be for me when I'm 80 and that happens this year I just can't figure it out yet it's still puzzling me but the point is is that this is our solitariness and we all share the same experiences of illness and disappointment and loss and we have to learn in life that if we're going to love and care we're going to know loss and grief and the real question of life and the meaning of life is how do you go on living and affirming with faith and hope when you know that death is a part of life. I can remember when I was in graduate school and I looked in the mirror one morning and realized that I had been in the best physical condition I would ever be in two years ago. <laughs> so I'm now going downhill. And because of what graduate school requires, I would never be able to work out as hard as I had. And so I could no longer act as if I'm as mortal. Of course, I couldn't anyway because I then had a wife and two children. So, you know, that's a very sobering kind of an experience. And so the question is, what is it that we can believe here? And my experience has been that in every church I served, and I served about 11 Unitarian congregations in the process of being an interim all around, that there are four possible faiths that are available for us to respond to our solitariness. Now, for those who are here, they all know that this is sort of a memory and a refresher, if you will. For those who are new, this will tell you 
why some of them, some people are thinking, you ever hear that phrase, the four face with Fred? Well, that's what the book is all about if you want to get it. I was supposed to bring 10 copies, but I forgot them this morning when I walked out of the house. So it touches life. Anyway, the four face. Let us think about it. How do we get to our highest values and where do they come from? And the idea is, is that the highest values come from our four face. Each of us has a, an ability to use what I would call our reverence. And reverence is that capacity to have a transcendent perspective on the present and on yourself. Now you notice that when I had that responsive reading, the responsive reading in the, was all, in every phrase was a transcendent perspective on a grain of sand or on the self or on an emotion. But when you did that, you got two sets of values. The self and then the larger perspective. Now you have two sets of values, so you have to have a sense of how these values always play in proportion. It's the same problem all of us face when we get a significant other in our lives. Now there's a me, and there's a you, and then there's an us. Three sets of values. How do you put them in proportion? Now it's not balance that you want, it's proportion. Because balance is this way. But sometimes it's here and sometimes it's there when you've got multiple values. Now remember, values is what you're willing to put in the effort and time to maintain. And I can see that this congregation takes a lot of time and effort to maintain it, and a lot of people are putting those in to make it a really wonderful place to be. Now, the four faiths are humanism, naturalism, mysticism, and theism. Each of these four words refers to a transcendent context which is larger than the single individual or the, at the moment. Humanism, the human community. Oh, by the way, in, in religion, if you're going to do something with your solitariness, you have to do, incorporate three things that are transcendent of yourself, which is there the reverence coming into play. You have to get a deeper understanding of yourself from what you had when you were a teenager. Then you must reach out to the communities, all of the communities in which you participate. The human community of yourself, the community of your family, the community of your city, of your church. And of course that's why this community is so important because all of us need some place where we go to know that what we believe is okay. I remember when I was the only Unitarian minister in the state of Arkansas in 1967. And there were only 90 people in the congregation, and 50% of the con state is Southern Baptist, and 25% is conservative Methodist. And I wondered, how is it that I can maintain that my values, which were fairly liberal, of course, in those days, have any validity if, I'm a if I believe in democracy, and democracy says the majority should rule and know the truth? Oops. So the point is, is that all of us to get our faith and get the answers to what is the meaning of my life reach to a transcendent reference system. Humanism, the human community, nature, the natural world. Most of the people who are naturalists feel that we are dependent upon the natural world, not inter we are, partly we are interdependent on it and dependent on it. It's not that it's interdependent with us. The natural world could probably do pretty well just fine without us. Let us remember that we are dependent on it.
not the other way around. And then mysticism. Most mystics today are scientifically trained and they have had experiences in their lives which they cannot deny and they cannot dismiss as luck. These are experiences which are profound for them and involve the unity of the self with that which is transcendent and creative in the world. They have a little bit of trouble talking about it, but they know that it's real. And these are the mystics that say, well, science is good, but it's not enough for me. There's something else going on, and I have to acknowledge that. And then, of course, theism is God. People who are comfortable with God language and know what that word refers to, and they have a, usually a fairly mature and sophisticated understanding of the word. I've been reading Alfred North Whitehead in the last three years, and now I am much more comfortable with it, but what I mean, and Whitehead means by God, is nothing you've ever heard of. But that's another sermon. And so when I was here, it was very interesting. We ran a course for the four faiths, and there were 200 members of the congregation and 100 people signed up for the course and 75 were in attendance every all of eight sessions which was a big surprise for me and the course ran I, I'd give a talk for 45 minutes and then they'd break into small groups self-identifying into the four faiths and then the final 30 minutes was having a reporter from each of the small groups report back what they discussed most people very quickly figured out that the final 30 minutes was the most interesting because those who were humanists didn't do what the theists did with the same experience and vice versa. What I discovered was that there were about 15 to 20 humanists and 15 to 20 theists and 25 mystics and everybody else was a naturalist. But what was wonderful about it was is that everybody was wrestling with the same problems. Let me give you an example. What do you believe happens when you die or anybody dies? Now, obviously, it's a relatively unanswerable question. However, there are only three possibilities available to you from the human imagination. Only three. And my bet is that all, each of us selects one and is betting the meaning of our life on that answer. The three possibilities are when you die, you're dead. There's life of some kind after death and reincarnation. Each of these answers will give meaning to life and give a transcendent context for every individual in their solitariness to respond and find a meaning and sustain life. It's fascinating. You know, now it comes back to Joe. Joe always got the right answer, but always used the wrong words. Wasn't it wonderful? She said you had to use the same words. In this case, the four faiths all use different language. That's what distinguishes them. If you're in a small group in the room with all four groups, all four faiths in the room, and you go to the wrong group for conversation, you'll screw up the conversation. You won't be able to participate. Because they are using language and understanding reality in a totally different way than you do. It was wonderful. There was one time here where I had to go to say, hey, you belong over there. <laughs> now the advantage of this is that as a minister, and the reason I worked it all out was is that as a minister, I knew that I had in times had to go into hospital rooms and I had to be able to speak the language of the person who was ill 
who might have been have had the doctor say you have only three months to live. How can you know what to say? You can, if it's a humanist, theistic language and answers don't make any sense at all. Mystic answers are totally irrelevant. And so by getting the four face, I was able then to very quickly figure out which language was appropriate. And so you see, this is what I finally figured out that all people should expect of clergy, people who carry that reverend meaning. Well, when I was retiring and going to no longer be using that reverend, I asked myself, what does reverend mean? I looked it up in the dictionary, of course. And it starts out with wonder and awe. My problem was I had never served a congregation where anybody had responded to me with wonder and awe. <laughs> and so I asked, what is it that members of a congregation should expect of a person who has the title of reverend? And the answer was, you should expect them to have a transcendent perspective and sense of proportion of the meanings of life. And so when I, as a minister, I strove to be able to shift my metaphysics, because that's what it really is. It's a shift in the way you see reality to move from one faith to the other. So this is what makes this congregation so great and so precious and why it's one of your highest values. Because we come here knowing that we don't all believe the same thing and we don't all make the meaning of life from the same source. We all face the same problems. Death and grief and disappointment and love and success and failure and anxiety and worry. We're all there. Joy. And we all have to come to our own answers and it's a wonderful place to come here and know that there are other people who are like you and other people who are different who will respect you and say, yes, that makes sense to you, but it doesn't to me because I didn't do that with that experience. It's all interpretation and wonderful, it seems to me. And so, let us come back then. Let me see if I've covered all my references in the service. Oh, yes. The final hymn is to the music of Holy, Holy, Holy. It is written from the time in Unitarian history when most Unitarians were theistic and they were just getting past that to go into naturalism with derived from Emerson. So there's also a third hymnal if you want to look it up, Nicaea, not Nicaea in the back, and you can find the third hymnal that comes from another source, also another period anyway. But anyway, so where do we go to seek our highest values? We go to the transcendent realms within which we live. We do something with our solitariness. We integrate the creativity of the world and the universe, the process of change into our lives. Those of us who have done it the most successfully are the most spiritual. Because the meaning of spirit from this perspective and spiritual is have you come to terms with the process of living and the transcendence that is around you and supports you and is always there and integrated it so that you can live with a positive faith and hope.